1: With Tim Ironcow, it is old fucking official. All right, stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library Rap: The Hip Hop Interviews with Tim Ironcow. It's cold. you with me. Yo. Yo, this is your man, <laughs> Razell, the godfather of noise, beatbox, king extraordinaire. Yeah.
2: There we go. This is uh, Razell. Thank you so much for being on the library with Tim Monacal and allhiphop.com. Uh, thanks for joining me again, man. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. So I want to start from the, your early beginnings. You grew up in Queens. So uh, what kind of started you beatboxing? And when did you kind of first hear it on WAX and, and kind of inspired you to pursue it?
1: I mean, actually... When I first when I first, I mean music always been a thing in urban communities, you know. Um, but like my early days, you know, my, my big my big influences were like the DJs that would that would play in my neighborhood. You know, I grew up in Queens and um, you know, we've had DJs from from Brooklyn as well come through and rock in the parks. Um Um, But my earlier introduction to the beatbox was uh, on cassette. It wasn't even on vinyl yet. It was on tape by uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So uh, that was my first introduction to the beatbox. And, um, you know, those tapes, you know, for me, kind of went, you know, went platinum in the hood, so to speak. And um, that was that was um, my basic introduction, and it just exploded. And I mean, I think at that point, everybody wanted to be or sound like, you know, Grandmaster Flash, because that was like the new thing that was that was popular. And um, you know, as a kid, we would form groups, you know, different groups, you know, write our rhymes or whatever. And somebody had to do the beatbox. So I was designated beatboxer. So they <laughs> did to the task. Um, I mean, I did a, I did a pretty good um, rendition of it. Um, I think what kind of like motivated me to get into it more than the rhyming part, because I mean, with two things, actually uh, a guy that actually moved from Brooklyn to Queens because um, back then you know you know a lot of the city jobs and airport jobs families from Brooklyn were moving to Queens to get you know a better living living situation mm-hmm. and uh, a guy that moved from Brooklyn his name was Monroe he was like I know somebody that could do the beatbox better than you so I'm like, really? Let me hear it. So he popped in the cassette tape. And it was this group called the Disco Three. And there a dude on the beatbox called Grandmaster Doc Nice. And I'm like, oh, yo. And that kind of like this spun my head around a little bit. But turned out the Disco Three was the Fat Boys. Wow. The Disco Three was the Fat Boys. And um, Grandmaster Doc Nice was Buffy. And that just started, I mean, from that point, that started my journey to get better, you know, because he definitely was good. And this was probably back, this was probably back 1980. 1980 when I heard Buffy. And in 81, is when I actually started to like go to the studio, like get getting introduced to the studio and, um, you know, writing more lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, I was introduced to uh, Paul C. McCaskey back in 81, late 81, 82. And, you know, and into, in, in and introducing himself, I mean, well, actually, me introducing myself to him, he was like, listen, let me hear. Let me hear what you got, because I heard you can do, you know, a pretty good uh, beatbox impersonation. <laughs> so I, I didn't know if to take that personally or not. But so I did I did the beatbox. He was like, oh, you know, you sound like the machine. Like, oh, that's crazy. <laughs> so, um, you know, just coming to my aspiration, I wanted to make records. I wanted to make records. So he's like, yo. So we would play around with some stuff. And he was like, okay, I think you sound different from everybody else. Around this time, this is when like Fat Boys is making records like, and Dougie Fresh mm-hmm. was, was popular. Like, this is all street stuff. This is before it even touched records. You know what I mean? So he's like, you sound different from them dudes. So he gave me a task, he's like, he used to do, he introduced me to other, since I sound like the actual machine, he started introducing me to other machines like the Lindrum, like the TR-808, the 909, the 707, um, the SP-12. He started introducing me to other drums. So he used to make beats and give me the, give me the beats on a cassette. And I go home and kind of just like, you know, rehearse these beats. Um, and he used to have them all broken down, like snare, kick drum, bass drum, hi-hat cymbals, like he would have it all broken down for me. Um he also what he also did, I mean, back then digging, digging was popular because, you know, with the DJ, especially with Grandmaster Flash, Cool Herc, you know, Grand Wizard Theater. Uh, I mean, it's a whole bunch of DJs that, you know, when they came to the park, they would play these records, but they would scratch out who the artist was and the name of the record because they wanted to have these rare grooves and these rare breaks before anyone. And they didn't want people to come, you know, like like now it's a free fall. Like people can just come download your stuff and, you know, all of a sudden you're a great DJ. Back then you had to really put in the work to be a great DJ and have like rare records that no one had. I mean, I think Africa Bambaataa was probably one of the top dudes because he had records from all over the world. So, but with the vocal thing, um, Paul C kind of introduced me to, to um, like for him, I reminded him of certain people and certain rhythms. So he introduced me to Kraftwerk, like groups like Craftwork, he introduced me to Al Jarreau, like introduced me to Bobby McFerrin, like early Bobby McFerrin, nineteen eighty-two, his okay. first album, and then uh, the, the Voice album. So he kind of like guided me and, and and steered my path, like on different stuff to focus on. Um, and you know that that just lit the fuel. That's pretty pretty much what lit the fuel for me. Um. I mean, you can go, you can go do the research on this, this acapella and 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 vocals, and you can do the, you can you can track it back to these guys where they were phenomenal. They were they were in the jazz genre, right? But it still had the funky rhythm to it, you know. Um, and also with the records that he was um, suggesting that. I kind of imitate or kind of follow like drum patterns. He gave me a whole lot of records that I would listen to as well that had drum drum patterns on it. You know what I'm saying? From James Brown. I mean, I'm it's a list, you know, Art Blakey, like, I mean, like he gave me homework, <laughs> like he gave me homework. He's also the guy that was responsible for me actually keeping my real name instead of coming up with a fictitious name. So uh, that was kind of like my early my my early journey like um, in the beginning stages of the beatbox you know a lot of people try to claim like they created the beatbox or whatever but it goes a little bit further back than that and even with the first rap record it goes a little bit further back than that once again Raising Queens everybody knows about the Fatback Band mm-hmm. 10th, King the Third you know I mean we can go on and on about you know, conspiracies and you know who planted the flag first. But um but like just on the just on the underground on the underground level, man, you know, it was Bruin, the Fat Boys, you know, they got signed to a record deal. Dougie Fresh started making records. Bismarck, you know, he got with Marley Mall. He started making records. But around that time, you know, I moved around a lot. Cause you know, I was in, I was in foster care. So I moved around. So that kind of hindered me actually being in one place to being able to focus on actually recording, but nonetheless, that never stopped me from honing in on the craft. So I was kind of like a mad scientist when it came to, when it came to um honing the craft of beatboxing. So with all those tools, you know, um, you know, in my neighborhood, I hooked up with a couple of other producers, uh, a guy named uh, Ray, Raymond Romaine. You know, he was um, he was another evil genius, not evil genius, but he's another genius. Right. Uh, when it came to production, like him and Paul C., like the guy, Raymond Romaine, we were doing things back in 81 and 82 that's relevant right now in 2020. Like, we was engaged with man versus machine like we was intertwining those things and um I still have cassette tapes with with music that I that we produced together from his crib back then and I can you can listen to it right now and it's like holy shit so you did this back in like 81 (laughs) it sounds like today what the kids are doing today so you know for me man it's like I I feel that I've always been, like, ahead of my time, like, decades. Like, stuff that I was doing back then was kind of over everybody's head because I don't think they was kind of ready to merge the two together. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think they were ready. So, um, you know, for me, I had to dumb it down a little bit. I had to, you know, I had to take the route. I want I don't want to say dumb it down, but to me, it was over people's heads because it sounded, people were like, is that really you? All right. So I'm like, yeah, that's me. It's like it sounds, it sounds like, it sounds like a real drum machine. Like, how are people going to be able to tell if it's you or if it's a machine? So that's always been the, well, back then, that was the, you know, that was kind of like the hurdle I had to get over. Because it sounded so real that people, if you play the track, people would think it was like a track with a drum machine. And, you know, somebody, you know, playing an instrument on top of it, they wouldn't think it's an actual human being. Um, where, you know, I think, like, guys like Bobby McFerrin and Al Jarreau where they did use jazz because people were used to instruments and jazz. So that's why they were able to pull it off a little bit better, you know? So with hip hop, it was a little bit different because, you know, we did use heavy drum machines or heavy samples. And, you know, me actually sounding like a drum machine People didn't get it because they were like, "Okay, um, what is he doing?" They were like, "No, that's him," and you know, this kind of confused people. So that's when I said, "You know what? Let me just start writing, being an MCs. Let me start focusing on the MC part now." So I put out I put out my first record in 1983 with a group that's kind of like paying a homage to my own cousin Raheem from The Furious Five. We were the ever loving five and you know, that was my first record rapping. Mm. I wanted to beatbox on it, but the guy that was producing the song, he was like, No, you know, we don't wanna we don't wanna produce a beatbox record or have a beatbox on the record. So so did the record anyway, you know, it got played on the radio. I mean, it really didn't do nothing, but you know, to me it was like me just my int- my introduction to um this, you know, this hip hop, like, yo, I'm on, I'm on the radio, man. Look, I made it. <laughs> so, um,
2: I want to, uh, I actually want to ask you, you. You, you talked about Bobby McFerrin and other kind of musicians that have inspired you or re-inspired you to do this craft. But uh, one
1: person, one person, six, like, crazy.
2: One, one person that stands out when I was kind of reading up on you and you talked about. There's a there's a point, I think, in your career where you kind of wanted to withdraw from beatboxing because you said it sounded monotonous. Uh, But you talk about the actor Michael Winslow, uh,
1: Winslow. I I knew about I knew about um, Michael Winslow in the 80s because, you know, he was an actor and, you know, he people always talked about, you know, the guy that can do all the incredible sounds with his mouth. And um, I mean, even as a kid, I was, you know, I was kind of. You know, intrigued by you know Disney and Warner Brothers, and you know all of those things played a part in in, in my development. And to actually see somebody that was, you know, using that vocal ability to uh, create c- to create a soundscape, mm-hmm. you know, was amazing to me. So, you know, that was that was a part of my blueprint as well. This, uh, you know, taking some pages out of Michael Winslow's book so we were right. talking in the 80s we were talking in the 80s Michael Winslow in the 80s
2: you also mentioned you know you obviously have worked with a ton of great producers and, and when I was going through your discography uh, a producer that really stands out is um, a Bob Power uh, you know he helped co-write uh, pr- yeah produce uh, To the Beat and Steal My Soul what is it like working with Bob but also how does someone like him kind of help I guess help you elevate your your music but also your studio
1: uh work. I mean with to me, uh, uh I think gravitating towards, you know, great producers because they're able to get the best out of me. You know, they able to the you know, at the time he was able to, to kind of stretch my ability and you know, he's like, Yo, this just be creative. This, you know. I mean, in some situations, you know, you uh you're producing a record. And you know, some producers don't really give you that that free range. You know, I can also say like when I work with Bjork, it was just it was kind of like working with Bob Powers. It was kind of like, "Be yourself. like all the things that you create in your own spare time, that's what I want to get out of you. So um you know, working with Bob, you know, he just kind of you know, and he understood he understood like jazz. You know he understood those things, so you know it was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna fuse the two together. We're gonna do the Al Jarreau, you know, we're gonna do the Al Jarreau slash hip hop slash tribe Called quests. Like we're gonna we're gonna do that type of vibe. So you know, and um, I mean, and that's when we came up to with them the two songs, you know, "Still My Soul." And to the beat with Q-Tip, you know what I mean? Uh,
2: uh, Roz, I'm gonna be probably all over the place, but I actually do kind of want to go back to uh, what you were talking about with uh, all the the, the quote unquote homework that you were given uh, in your early early on in your career. Were these records that you were listening to, were these machines that you were hearing, were they? challenge was it challenging for you to recreate them or I mean how much work did you yourself feel that you had to put into them and when did you know that you kind of perfected them
1: I mean I mean it was to me it was this it was just a constant listening session it's a constant listening session and he would he would play stuff for me another note I want to I want to put out he would play he would play he would play stuff record it put it on cassette give it to me to take home I would listen to the stuff. I would try to, you know, do my, do my, do my best to emulate the exact frequency of what that particular track was. You know, everything is dependent on your anatomy. So, I mean, it, it was, it was a, it was definitely a huge, huge test for me because and a learning experience at the same time because the stuff that I was learning, I didn't know I was learning it. He just gave me the work and like, yo, next time I see you, I wanna see if you can get this down. So here go these records. Next time I see you, I wanna see if you can do this riff that Al Jarreau was doing on take five. Let me see, you know, let me see if you can do that. Like, so he was just giving me these, give me this homework all the time and I would come back and I do my best rendition. But what happened in that process, I developed my own techniques. I've developed my own style listening to those tapes. You know, so it wasn't, it wasn't the point to get to get it exact spot on. I think what he was trying to accomplish is to get me to think differently and get me to create my own style. Because I think at the time, no, I know for a fact, at the time, you know, like everybody mimics everybody. It's like beatboxing today, everybody mimics each other. What he was trying to do, I didn't know at the time, but what, as time went on, I kind of figured out that's what he was trying to do. What he was trying to do was to keep me from mimicking everyone else. Mm -hmm. and making records like everyone else because at a certain point all the records everybody was making the same record or trying to compete and try to you know outdo the next person but not sounding different
2: right
1: you know what i'm saying so to me to and it it worked out for me in the long run because it allowed it allowed me to think outside the box no pun intended it allowed me to actually grow it allowed me to actually like be committed like you can't sound like everyone else, you got to be different, and what's gonna make you different from everyone else? so during that time, I'm like, okay well let me what's how can I be a different MC than everyone else? okay, an MC that can beatbox, an MC that can do sound effects, an MC that can produce. You know, can produce his own tracks with his own vocals. So that's where that's what came out of all of that homework, right? That he was given me.
2: How does the homework and your prep? I want to. I just want to take you, take you, you take us to a live show. I mean, I saw you prior to the interview recording. I told you know I saw you years ago at a uh, and Bowl with uh, Pete Rock, and obviously the and we watched you many times on YouTube. And your live show is impeccable. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because I have no idea how you do it. half the things you do, any of the things you do, but it's you know incredible to watch. How do you take your the homework that you start out with and and trans transla- tra- transition it to a not just the studio time and making records or music, but also to the live show Were you also seeing all were you also trying to see these people live as well, or were you or was the records helpful enough to make you allow you to kind of create your own live no. show?
1: Now what I now that was a, now that was a whole different school. Now I learned about live performance and recording. You know, once I joined the roots, once I joined the roots, that was a whole other. That was roots university. So we're talking live performance and recording, two different animals, right? Two different frequencies that you have to deal with. You know, where in the studio, you're able you're able to dig a little deeper because you're able to pick up frequencies that you can't hear once it disperses. Like when you perform live, you're talking about it's, it disperses. Like those frequencies start to travel. Where when you're in the studio, you can harness it right away before it expands. Once it starts to expand it dissipates, those frequencies dissipate. So you don't get the same, you know, you don't get the same attack. You don't get the same movement with those frequencies when you're performing live. Now, a good sound engineer can help mobilize those frequencies, but sometimes, I mean, that's always a battle because with every venue, with every arena, Every place you go, the sounds, they vary because depending on the sound, the size of the venue, depending on the acoustics, like, you know, to me, that was a whole nother school. <laughs> that was a whole nother school for me because now I'm learning about, oh, now I'm live with what I'm doing in the studio. In the studio, I can chop it up and you can hear the little live, that little Dissipates in seconds, and somebody that's in the back row in the back of the club, they can't hear that. They can't hear that what they heard on the record. So, you know, learning about that between what's live and what's recorded, I learned that, you know, being with the roots. So that was a whole nother school. That was like, what I learned about the rec- the studio was st- and, and records and listening, that was the school of Paul C. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Paul C and Ray Romaine. Like those guys was like, yo, the kick, let's get it down. You know, the roots was like, yo, this is live and we're gonna take the live and we're gonna go to the studio. So, you know, it was two different two different things that was going on, two different schools.